back, Classic and Me podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. What's going on, Jason? You know, it's feeling good. Um, you know, we now have all of our archives back. All 270 episodes are available at overandbacknba.com. Feels good to, I feel like I'm fully restored again. I'm whole now. Yeah. So. No, it was, uh, it was not easy. Yeah. We had, uh, we, we mentioned it at the, I forget when it actually went down uh, somewhere earlier uh, in this very, in the very, very long year that was 2020 uh, where, and, and not to kind of peel the curtain back a, a little bit, but uh, essentially our old podcast provider like downgraded us for not, we're not really sure why. And, and as a result, uh, as we're like, Hey, uh, why are you downgrading us? We shouldn't be downgraded. We should be upgraded. You know, we, we, we don't need, uh, didn't get any answers to anybody. And then all of a sudden one day we go and all of our archives got deleted and it was just like, Oh God. So thankfully, uh, by, and, and the other issue too is like the computer that I recorded most of, or I edited most of the shows on, the hard drive is dead on it. It fell, it dropped, and like it, I've tried to get people to recover it. And nobody can quite work on it. So it was like, oh my God, these are lost forever. Like, how the hell are we going to get to these? Where are we going to find these? And we were able to kind of put them all together from different sources my computer, your computer, uh, online downloads, Google drives, like a bunch of random places. I think one or two we maybe had to ask somebody for, uh, but eventually we got there and we got it. Now all 270 episodes. Uh, of over and back are back up there and, and accessible on all podcast apps uh, as well as well as at over and back NBA uh, dot com and YouTube as well. They're all up on uh, on YouTube. So uh, very happy that we were able to do that. And now, again, I do feel like especially with our show, because there's so many people like, hey, I want to listen to like this episode. And I'm like, I know that there's no real way yeah, to do it. Well, I know, because nice. that's like yeah. what our show is, is that you can go back and listen to an episode from five years ago. And yeah, we might say something stupid about like some player that ended up actually not being good or some like, you know, hey, this guy's on the trajectory of being a star. And then he ends up not doing yeah. it. Or we like yeah. badmouth somebody or, who's actually great or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, hey, Greg McMurray's Yeah. Yeah, like Greg Monroe is going to be a Hall of Famer. Or something, yeah, right. You know, well, like if Greg Monroe so, continues yeah. on this pace, this 2010 yeah. pace that he's on right now, I mean, <laughs> sky is absolutely the limit for this guy. And this Steph Curry guy, I don't know. I don't know if a, a, a guard like that is going to be able to, you know, win in the NBA. Who knows? Well, yeah. That, that's I, how long this I stupid mean, show has been around. Is the NBA has changed yeah. dramatically for as long as it has, uh, you know, as long as we've been around. But, uh, yeah. yeah. When, I, when we I first mean, started, I'm sure that we had like very pro Greg Monroe and very like, I don't know about Steph. Like it, it might be tough. Like, yeah, right. I, I mean, definitely no team can shoot as many threes, you know, that no. many threes and actually succeed. It's impossible. Oh, no, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Come on. It's it's too high of a risk. Nonsense. You don't shoot a high percentage. Yeah, get down in the paint. Right. Get your back yeah. to the basket. Let's go to work. Let's right. play some ball. So Yeah, that's real basketball right there. <laughs> so we are going to discuss both real and fake basketball by uh, going in to um, – Look at just because kind of a random assortment of guys. I mean, all these guys have um, been all stars, or a, one of them was not never an all star, but won the sixth man of the year, I believe, three times. So, you know, all some level of stardom, um, but all of them share one unique thing in which each of them appeared in just one game for a franchise. So, somewhere along the line, they just played one game for a team, and we're going to look into the circumstances, instances of, um, of how that happened. So digging into some guys, um, old and new, so it should be fun. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, obviously the idea, and there's probably a bunch of other guys that maybe we missed here. The key we were trying to look for is guys that at least had fun or interesting stories. And, and there are probably a few, like we said, that we, we may have missed or a few guys that, that, you know, we didn't talk about, but we try to keep it to at least, you know, 
you know, big time players, stars, as we said, stars with one game stints, you know, some guys at, at a little bit of a higher star level and then some guys that were still stars when they had their one game stints and then a several that were like, you know, former stars that still, but still at the end of the day, at one point in these guys' career, uh, they were known as, as, as top tier players, stars, all stars, you know, championship winning, you know, players or whatnot. So that is the key, but I, I'm, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you can go through the list and find a bunch of dudes that played, you know, one game, uh, you know, you know, the franchise or whatever, but these were kind of the, the ones that we really picked out as the, the stars uh, that, you know, really top, top tier players. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the first one, we're going to go way back to 1948. Kenny Sailors of the Chicago Stags. Yes, there was a Chicago Stags franchise in the old BAA, one of the forerunner leagues to the NBA. And Kenny Sailors, we have talked about him on the show before. He was a jump shot pioneer at the University of Wyoming, was one of the guys who really popularized the uh, jump shot first in college and then a bit in the NBA um, was a two-time college player of the year and a college basketball Hall of Famer. He was discussed heavily in a uh, friend of the show, Sean Fury's book, Rise and Fire. So definitely a great read, and you can kind of dig more into Kenny there. But, um, you know, Kenny started in the BAA after the war, like a lot of guys did, uh, playing for the Cleveland Rebels, the uh, good old Cleveland Rebels. Maybe the... The, I don't know the, if the, the baseball team should consider if they're going to change the great name. name. What do you think That's, of Rebels? Yeah, yeah when I was, I was reading your notes a little bit earlier, I was like, ooh, everyone's on like the Spiders and all that sort of stuff. The Cleveland Rebels, that's a, that's a nice one. That's pretty good. As long as they don't make it, you know, Confederate flag. Right. Uh, themed, would which be, would not yeah. be. They're like, all right, oh. look, we stopped at the Indians and here's our new team. And it's like, oh, no. Right. Like, that's almost yeah. worse. Like, what are you yes. guys doing? Like, yeah. Right. Jeez. Like, so, like, what? Not. You wanted us not to be the Indians? <laughs> right. Like, oh. Yeah. Go back to the Spiders. Spiders are good. You guys are the Spiders now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so they, they were the rebels. It was the BA's inaugural season in 1947. Um, he was the fifth leading scorer on that team. He's a he's a guard, um, only five eleven. That was a you know Ed uh, Ed Stefanski was getting the uh, ball a lot for uh, that team. So or it's going to be Ed Sadowski, not Stefanski. Who am I think? Who is Stefanski? Who uh, I, uh, a, no, what's his name? Uh, there is a yeah, there is there. I think it's Ed there's an announcer. Yeah. Yeah, Ed Sadowski. Ed Sadowski is kind of what he was a kind of a famed big man of the uh, time. And, you know, he was getting the ball a lot and he was uh, he was scoring for the Rebels. They, they finished 30 and 30, uh, made the playoffs, but lost uh, to the Knicks in the playoffs. And the Rebels were one of four BAA teams that went out of business after the first season. So, you know, he's up for a uh, he's in the dispersal draft for the following season. And he is chosen by the Chicago Stags. The Stags were the finals runner up in 1947. Um, and then he played the very first game of the season with the Stags, finished with zero points on zero of three uh, shooting. Um, so not, uh, you, know, uh, you know, only only one game, but not the uh, best game for him. And then he was sold to the Philadelphia Warriors, who were the defending champs. It's like, oh, I'm even, I'm going from, you know, the second best team <laughs> yeah. to the best team in the league. All right, it's going to be great. And he played two games there, uh, including one against his uh, former uh, Stags teammates. He averaged two points per game in uh, those games. So not a lot of playing time. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess there. Then he went on to the Providence Steamrollers um, and, you know, and, and played pretty well. He averaged uh, 12.7 points per game. 345 shooting percentage, which sounds bad, but the league average was 337. So he was actually yeah. average. <laughs> right. That's pretty, pretty right. damn good, actually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, the uh, the steamrollers, they went 6 and 42 on the 
season. So not not a great record. I think that that was definitely set set a record for a long time for worst uh, winning percentage in the league until the um, 76ers, you know, broke that record in 73. Um, Their highlight perhaps was getting two games out of their coach, Nat Hickey, who is the oldest player in BAA NBA history at age 45 years, 363 days. So he just won. um, I think his last game was just one or two days shy of his 46th birthday. Um, And fun fact is that he was born in 1902. Nat Hickey was the next oldest player, uh, whoever whoever played in the BA or NBA was born in 1913. So so 11 years passed between the oldest and the second oldest player in BA and NBA history. So <laughs> that's a that's a fun fact right there. Very so, old. Yeah, that's an old man. Yes. And, and like right. what's what's also interesting too is you know in that era you know you go back right. and look at even old baseball and old basketball and old sports. There's not a lot of you know guys you know that age. We're talking you know we're recording this just days you know prior to the Super Bowl where you know Tom Brady who's forty plus years old uh, is going to you know be in his whatever am I fucking eleventh or whatever Super Bowl? Who knows? Uh, it doesn't matter at this point because I don't really care and I don't really watch football. But uh, you know that like guys now and he te- you know keeps meticulous care of his body and everything that goes into his body he's well aware of and he's you know just and LeBron who who spends millions of dollars to make sure that his body's ready to go and even like a, a Vince Carter a recently retired Vince. Carter, who did everything he could to hang on until he was, you know, 41 and 40. And, and it's like 45. Like, that's so old. And and I do wonder if we will ever see that broken. I think LeBron seems like one, but it's easy to say that now we're still, you know, what, seven or eight years from that, which, you know, in, in, in hindsight, seems like it's going to be pretty tough for LeBron or even God, are we even 10 years away from LeBron? He's like 36, right? 35, 36. Uh, yeah, I think he turned 36 um, in December. So, so yeah, another still- decade of LeBron. Like, I can't like imagine that. Like that would be, I mean, I guess the way around that would be, you know, you retire for a few years or you don't really play and then you come back. But like, still, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's remarkable achievement by, by Ned Hickey. Yes. Um, so I am trying to look it up real quick. Yeah. So the um, the second person to play after age 40 was Bob Cousy, of course, who played seven games, you know, made a comeback in the uh, 1970 season. The third person to play past age 40 was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who did it, you know, in 88 and 89, playing until age 42. So, you know, in you know, basically 40 years of uh, pro basketball history, only three guys played past um, age 40. You know, now there's, you know, a, uh, you know, a handful of guys, not, not that many, only really, you know, a dozen or so who have uh, played past uh, age 40. So, you know, a remarkable um, achievement, particularly uh, during that time. Um, so anyway, back to, as I mentioned, uh, Kenny Sailors, he earned a second team all BAA for a slightly improved uh, Providence team, Rillers team in 1949. They, they finished 12 and 48. So not, not great, but you know, certainly better. Doubled their wins. So um, the steamrollers, despite, you know, the smashing success they'd had, they would fold and um, sailors would then have his best statistical season in his next stop in 1950 for the original Denver Nuggets, not the same Nuggets as we have today, but this was the first iteration of them. They'd actually recently moved into professional basketball from the amateur circuit where they'd had a lot of success. Sailors had 17.3 points per game on uh, 43% true shooting, which was also above league average and four assists per game. 
Again, the team's success not strong. The Nuggets would finish 11 and 51. So, you know, he endured three pretty rough, uh, you know, seasons in terms of uh, team success, despite, you know, pretty good success individually. Sailors then the next year, he would he'd split time between the Celtics, which was in Red Arbach's first year, and the original Baltimore Bullets. Um, and you might think, well, yeah, his pro career was a tad disappointing, especially for a guy who was a two-time college player of the year. But, you know, living well is the best revenge, and he lived until a ripe old age of 95 when he passed away in 2016. There you go. That's so, living. Yeah, yeah, that's living for yeah. sure. And, and, and uh, again, we mentioned at the top, of, but the uh, Sean Fury book, Rise and Fire, uh, does a lot. If you ever want to know everything you need to know about Kenny Sailors and his career, uh, it is all in there. We just did a little snippet there, but uh, that 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 yeah. book does a tremendous job of telling his story and also the challenges of being a jump shooter coming into the NBA, being like, "Hey, I do this thing that's pretty good," and everybody being like, "Yeah, no, not here." <laughs> like you know, and that's right, like right. you know, in high school, he's like, "Hey, I can jump and take shots," and they're like, "Yeah, no, you're not going to do that here." And then in college, being like, "Hey, I can jump and take shots," and they're like, "Yeah, you're not going to do that here." And then he does it, and he ends up becoming a college player of the year, and it's like, "Oh, maybe this thing works." And then he basically restarts in the NBA where people are like, yeah, no, you're not going to do that here. That's not going to happen uh, until, you know, later in his career where it starts to get adapted a little bit and teams do start kind of realizing the power of it. By, but, but by the time that happens, you know, Sayers is already in his 30s or whatever. So revolutionary in, in a sense, but never a guy that I think is given enough credit uh, for being the first guy because he just wasn't the, the pro career wasn't successful enough for people to say, oh, well, it's all, you know, Kenny Sailors is the reason why. I mean, people that really know the inner workings of, of you know, the jump shot and the history of the jump shot will we'll, we'll point to Kenny Sailors. But, yeah, as far as like your common fan would pretty much not know who he is because the, the pro career just wasn't significant enough on any level. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and Sean, you know, not just sailors, but lots of guys, you know, who were influential in development of the jump shot. Sure. You know, he gets into it. It's a fantastic book. Definitely yeah, great, uh, check great, it out. Great if you stuff. Know. So, yeah. All right, so our next guy here is Rashid Wallace, and and this is a really unique case for what we're going to talk about the rest, throughout the rest of the show because he's a star in his prime. And every other instance that we talked about there with Kenny Sailors, he's kind of bouncing around a little bit. He's bouncing around during his you know kind of so-so NBA career. A bunch of the other guys we're going to talk about throughout this episode are guys that you know that'll it'll kind of be one of the last legs or one of the final legs of their career. This is a star in his prime, a guy who later that year would be you know influence the NBA Finals as arguably his team's best player, uh, a bona fide All Star, and really I would say the all time one game with a team guy is Rashid Wallace for the Atlanta Hawks, right? Like that's, that's the one that everybody knows. Everybody's aware of any list. That's like these guys, can you believe that these players played for these teams? Like it's always Rashid Wallace. He's always listed among these. He he's, and I I guess I'll pose the question to you, Jason, is he the, the all time one game with the team guy, Rashid Wallace? Certainly it's the best known. And I think, you know, you look at just, um, it, you know, the impact just you know he uh, of all of these he definitely you know a lot of these were just you know short appearances or guys at the end of their career at the very beginning of the career yeah, he was the definitely the one who was the bonafide star who really um mattered a lot and as you said was one of the most important players uh, you know who played in the league um that season um so I, absolutely yeah, I, I don't think there's really any other um comparable case it's some interesting ones for sure but in terms of yeah uh, be, be, you know the biggest one the one that's the best known he absolutely is uh clearly that so we'll quickly recap uh, uh wallace's you know rocky career star which has got its ups and downs he's drafted by the washington bullets in the 1995 uh nba draft paired with uh their incumbent young star chris weber uh at that time chris weber obviously on his second team at this point he went from the warriors uh, then to the bullets and it sounds like it should work and it sounds like it should work great, but it kind of didn't. And I don't know if that's these guys. I don't know if it's their personalities. I don't know if it's also the Washington bullets who were kind of a absolute disaster. 
it's just it always pains me that this Rasheed Wallace Chris Webber thing was given like a year and they're just like well this can't possibly work and it's like man I really like I I my vision like it would have sucked because they would have done it in Washington Wizards uniforms and that that would have just been tragedy for everybody but like why didn't they not just say hey let's try this for maybe another year because you know spoiler alert they're gonna trade him uh, you know for for some old talent uh, in in Rod Strickland and Harvey Grant at this time but yeah I'm always I'm always wondering like why did that thing not why didn't they get a little bit more time between Weber and, and, and Wallace but I guess Washington Bullets at the time were uh were keen on making very rash quick and more more times than not bad yeah. decisions I, during that era so. I mean you know Strickland was an important player for them so I there is some validity to making the trade um there and you know I they did actually I think make the playoffs uh, and that was like the first time they made the playoffs in quite a long time so a, a little bit you know you can kind of understand the thinking of that but definitely uh, you know obviously in retrospect um you know both um obviously Wallace and Weber both had tremendous careers after leaving Washington so there you know seems like there's um you know some reason for that for sure. So then, of course, as I said, he is uh, traded to Portland for Rod Strickland and Harvey Grant. And as you said, that is kind of an immediate trade uh, that helps out Washington. And it, it helps uh, Portland as well because Portland uh, really starts going on some deep playoff runs with Wallace as a part of a pretty deep team. Uh, and and most people know kind of the Rasheed Wallace era Portland Trailblazer stuff, you know, combining with a ton of other talented players and a ton of other, you know, really, really good. You know, David Stoudemire comes over from uh, the Portland or uh, from the Toronto uh, Raptors. You get a bunch of different Brian Grants there for a few years. Arvita Sabonis finally comes over after like a decade or whatever. I mean, just combining a lot of kind of misfit toys into one thing. And then one thing works and it's fun and it's interesting and it's, it's, it's really dynamic. You know, obviously you get Scotty Pippen uh, when he's done with Houston and, 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 and the Bulls. And uh, they, again, they go on deep playoff runs. They arguably, you know, minutes away from going into uh, an NBA finals until, you know, Kobe and Shaq had other things to say about that and kind of stole that away. And you're always kind of wondering what would have happened with that team and kind of un, you know, un, un, unseen you know the heights that they could have reached or, or what they could have done uh, but they always seem to come up just short uh and things started to kind of fall apart obviously a little bit you know in the later years and Rashid Wallace uh during this time too is not only just kind of coming into his own as a player uh beginning a reputation as a player that would get a lot of technical fouls and a lot of ejections lot. Uh, yes. along the way and and this one I found interesting because I, I completely forgot that this happened uh and a little bit of vindication for Rashid Wallace I hope that the NBA sent him a nice letter uh, uh this is Wallace was also suspended by the NBA for seven games when he threatened then-NBA referee Tim Donahue on an arena loading dock after a game in 2003. Uh, that was the league's longest suspension for an offense that did not involve violence or substance abuse. I hope that they, again, as I said, gave him those seven-game checks back. You know, for Because he's like, look, Donahue, he's an asshole. I told you guys. Like, this, guy's, right, yeah. this guy's not up on the up and up. I'm just trying to tell yeah. you. I'm just trying. Right. He's so, shady. Vindicated for yeah. Rasheed Wallace. But, uh, yeah, it became a problem uh, for sure uh, with, with Rasheed. Uh, and really became, you know, an issue for the Blazers in general. Their entire demeanor, whatever the hell you want to say about the Blazers in this era, uh, they enjoyed uh, a lot of recreational activities. Uh, sure. Enjoyed a lot, getting yeah, a lot of arrest, a lot of um, you know, the, the the fan, the local fans, a lot of them, um, you started to not like the team and, and not like the personalities, and mm-hmm. um, you know, they were kind of bullies in the the. The, just like the not fun way. I guess it's, it's the more fun way when you win or when you, you know, kind of um, do it with a smile for lack of a better term. But um, yeah, it, you know, it was just, it was kind of like, 
um, you know, he was frustrated with the team. They were frustrated with him and, you know, wanted to move on and move into a, um, and move into a new area. And it worked fairly well for both teams. Obviously Wallace eventually goes to the uh, Pistons and does well. And, you know, the, um, Blazers rebuild relatively soon after that with uh, Brian Roy. So, you know, uh, it, it all it all kind of turns out to be uh, work out fairly well. Yeah, the, the Portland thing when they were you know winning fifty and sixty games or whatever was like ah whatever yeah boys will be boys or whatever. But yeah, when they started winning like forty three games and forty five games, it's like all right you know everybody getting suspended and everybody getting you know ejected and everybody you know kind of doing the it, it, it just wore thin and and it was time for yeah. kind of a change and, there. Yeah, and there was it was kind of like a mix of like you know just like some like knucklehead silly stuff like you know the the well Rasheed Wallace getting teases whatever who cares but you know there was also like some domestic violence and some right, more like right, serious right. like actual like reckless you know criminal like you know horrible stuff you know kind of and and sometimes you know the, that stuff all kind of gets interspersed into one you know negative aura even though one is obviously kind of like okay whatever and then one is obviously like a, a serious thing so right 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 but unfortunately yeah like you said like yeah smoking weed and getting ejected was kind of on the same level as domestic violence at that point because it was right. just like ah oh, the jailblazers are at it again it's and it's exactly like well no right. that guy's yeah. a criminal like that's actually yeah. bad like no that yeah that that one guy is much much worse than what these other guys are doing but essentially it was all it needed to all kind of go away everybody needed to kind of break up and, and go their separate ways and 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 that's sure. what they did and, and actually it ended up working out for like a lot of the players like Zach Randolph would have his little second run Rashid Wallace would have his little second run like a lot of these guys would go on to have like some pretty fun uh, interesting runs you know apart from each other but anyway uh, February 9th 2004 uh, Portland trades uh, Rashid Wallace to the Atlanta Hawks uh, for Sharif Abdul Rahim Theo Ratliff and Dan Dickow so Rashid Wallace is an Atlanta Hawk that is not where he wants to go but we'll talk about it uh, here in a sec um Wallace will score 20 points in just three quarters in his Atlanta Hawks debut. Six rebounds, five blocks. Seems like a good fit for Atlanta. They're kind of a team that's, yeah, they're, they're not necessarily on the rise, but they have some talent. They got Jason Terry. They have a few guys on the, on the roster. You can see the, the, the building blocks of that team, but it is not going to last. Um, they do question Rashid Wallace of, hey, do you really want to be in Atlanta? That kind of seems like a, a weird fit. And his quote, I found this from a Detroit uh, newspaper. He says, as long as somebody CTC, at the end of the day, I'm with them. For all you know that don't know what CTC means, that means cut the check. But if I have to go somewhere and play, I'm not going to sit up here and boohoo about it. No, because at the end of the day, I will still be able to do the things necessary to take care of my family. That's what the CTC means. Whoever cuts that check, that's who I have to play for. Um I guess that's a cool attitude. I like it. I mean, yeah. Hey, um, get paid. You know, who cares? Atlanta. Honest, yeah, yeah, whatever. Honest, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Rashid came to the Hawks. I, I had just recently moved to Atlanta at the time that Rashid came to the Hawks, you know, within, you know, I like, actually probably like a month or, or two in there. So, um, you know, I was just sort of toying with the idea of becoming a Hawks fan. I didn't really start following the team until the, uh, the next season, the, you know, the, 13 and 69, you know, 2004, 2005 Atlanta Hawks that, you know, we've uh, mentioned many times in the show, uh, the Josh Smith Hawks, who, you know, you're going to talk about later, you know, the, um, Rashid does net the Hawks, the, the pick that gets them Josh. Smith. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're not done too, but, um, in a sense, but, uh, but yeah, that was, if obviously it was a big deal at the time, the Hawks were kind of, yeah, they were, they were kind of a blah team. They were kind of, you know, leftover of veterans from a team that had, been better a few years ago sort of like portland but not as successful i guess like you know like um you know but they had a lot of older guys they had some guys who had been just you know just weren't vibing with the city and they needed to change as well so um 
it would have been interesting to see if they had tried to go with, you know, Jason Terry and Rasheed Wallace. Cause you know, again, that's not a bad foundation for a team. You know, those, those guys obviously went on to big success, you know, in the second half of the decade. So maybe that could have worked out, but um, you know, the Hawks were not a, a super well run organization at the time. Yeah. So that, that one game is going to be February 18th, 2004. And, and again, the, the minute he's traded to Atlanta, it's already people being like, does, does Rasheed Wallace really want to play in Atlanta? Like that seems like a weird thing. And, and apparently according to some different people, uh, that is not true. At least uh, Chris Broussard of the New York Times, a very famous, uh, yeah. <laughs> not always correct <laughs> reporter, uh, says here. And his source is, I guess, you know, a, a, a decent enough source here. But he says, uh, you know, Wallace is quoted in this New York Times article saying, right now it's about Atlanta. Uh, it says Wallace will become a free agent after the season. I'm not worried about the end of the season. So this is all kind of this thing where Rasheed Wallace is going to become a free agent at the end of the year. And, okay, the Atlanta has him now. But even if they say, hey, here's a max deal. Hey, Rashid, do you really want to stay in Atlanta? Is he going to stay in Atlanta? And it was a deal that they, you know, made, you know, to see, hey, maybe we'll see what can happen. You know, maybe we can, maybe we can retain him. Maybe we can, you know, change his mind or whatever. Um, this, according to Bill Strickland, uh, Rashid Wallace's agent at the time in this Chris Broussard article, uh, says that his goal was to have Wallace on the Knicks roster before today's 3 p.m. trade deadline. So, Rasheed Wallace's agent wants him on the New York Knicks. Rasheed Wallace wants to be wherever the check is being cut. Uh, and it ended up that he's going to Detroit. It's a three-team deal here, February 19th, 2004, uh, three-team trade. Same day as, as that actual game uh, that he plays, three-team trade, uh, where the Boston Celtics are going to trade Chris Mills to the Atlanta Hawks. The Boston Celtics are going to trade Mike James to the Detroit Pistons. Uh, Detroit Pistons are going to uh, trade, I for, uh, it was Zello Rabaka. I forgot, I think I know it was Rabaka, but I forget. Uh, I forget how to pronounce his first name, but it doesn't matter. He, he was not very good. Uh, Bob Sura and a 2004 first round pick later to be Josh Smith would actually come around and, and bite the Detroit Pistons in the ass. In the end. Yeah, they they decided, oh, you know what? <laughs> like, yeah. like, damn yeah. it, we, we traded him a bunch of years ago. Let's get him back and let's have yeah. him be a three point shooter for some reason. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Why not? <laughs> didn't work very well. But uh, yeah. Detroit Pistons trades uh, Rabraka, uh, Bob Sura, and that uh, 2004 first round pick that would end up becoming Josh Smith. Uh, and the Detroit Pistons trade Chucky Atkins, Lindsey Hunter, and a 2004 first round pick, eventually Tony Allen, to the Boston Celtics. Uh, so Atlanta, of course, gets some big picks. So like you said, b- picks that would end up kind of building their next decade there with with, with Josh Smith uh, in particular. Sure. Boston Celtics get a decent defender in Tony Allen, who would be a big part of you know a title team. So there are a lot of really talented players moving around here. And, uh, of course, the biggest one is going to be Rasheed Wallace, who goes to the Detroit Pistons. Uh, Detroit had been a very good team over the last few years. It had been knocking on the door. Uh, of the NBA Finals, and and this would, you know, of course, uh, work out well for Detroit uh, as an understatement because they would win the 2004 NBA Finals. Uh, and Wallace, I, I mean, this is kind of always up for debate when everybody kind of says, like, oh, it was a team of, like, everybody was, like, great and everybody was equal. But to me, if you really look at the numbers, you look at, at, at the impact or whatever, to me, Wallace was arguably the team's most complete player, the guy that kind of did everything. And, and, and I don't know that that team... They got close, you know. Obviously, they were they were in the Eastern Conference Finals many, many times. They were right on the doorstep. Uh, I don't think this team wins the finals without a Rasheed Wallace, and I think he just took them to that to that next level. And and it's clear that he did. I mean, obviously, you know, look at the years yeah, prior, and then look at the year they got him. It's it, you know. Oh yeah, they, yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, they were, yeah, you know, much better. He com- completed them and uh, basically made them fit together, you know, well and. Um, you know, it was, it was the perfect marriage of exactly what they needed. Um, and yeah, they, they win the championship that year and they go to the Eastern Conference Finals for like the next five years and, you know, are a, a championship contender, you know, pretty much that whole time. So, 
Um, yeah, absolutely. One of one of the best in season trades. I think we've talked about it before. One of the best in season trades in um, NBA history, and absolutely um, terrific. One thing I, I, I want to mention about the game um, that uh, Rashid played for with the Hawks for a moment is that the the starting lineup for the Hawks there: Jason Terry, Rashid Wallace, Stephen Jackson, Joel Prisbilla, and Boris Diaw. Now, like. If that if that's like a 2017, that's yeah. like basketball <laughs> right. Twitter's like dream right there, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Priscilla was a, he was a pretty decent, like shot blocking, like, you know, bouncy big man. Yeah. Um, oh, and that's you know, a, in those days. Yeah. Priscilla was solid yeah. in those days. He was just this big, yeah. he was like shaped like a brick and he just like blocked everything that came near the basket. That's, that's what you right. wanted. Yeah. What out of your was, centers. He, he had, Right. He's a fun guy to, to watch. And, you know, those other guys, of course, are, you know, basketball, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, I mean, that would have been like a really high IQ, like fun, like tough, like, you know, that could have been the team that upset. That could have easily been the, um, you know, similar to the Warriors, you know, of, of that. We believe, of, yeah, you know, we oh, believe, yeah, Warriors, we believe yeah. Warriors. That could, that could have been a version of that team for sure. I mean, maybe even a little bit better, to be honest, with Rasheed there. So. No, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I always yeah. like that. I always like those early uh, 2000s Hawks teams. But uh, anyway, uh, so when it, when all kind of dust settles there, why, you know, Atlanta, why do they do it? Well, they acquired Wallace. They cleared cap space. I then cleared cap space again by trading Wallace uh, over to uh, uh, Detroit. So they had $20 million in cap space to, yeah. uh, I don't know really what to do because the next they, – they got Antoine Walker. What are you talking about? Oh, that's right. Oh, God damn. Yeah. I forgot that. that yeah. Right, because they point. traded Jason Terry and, and everybody to get Antoine Walker. Yeah. So. Yeah, right. Antoine Walker. Yeah. yeah. And exactly. then a year later, yeah. we get Joe Johnson. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was a plan. April and I, you know, he's, he, he had a plan. <laughs> the you plan know? was give all money to Antoine Walker. Well, you know what? Hey, uh, yeah. good plan, I guess. Uh, didn't end up hey, working hey. for Atlanta, but, you know. Get as many six foot nine guys as you can. And, and <laughs> See what happens. Day. He was ahead of the yeah. game. He was twenty yeah. years too early. Twenty years too early right. for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I should note here that Rashid Wallace uh, to, to endear himself both to Jason and I. Not that he needed to anyway, because we're both big Rashid Wallace fans. Uh, he paid for a replica WWE World Heavyweight titles to be uh, made for each of his teammates and then presented them as gifts when the uh, next season started after their title team. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, Rashid Wallace. Yeah. Uh, following yeah. year after the Pistons title, uh, he signed a five-year, $57 million contract, remains in Detroit. Uh, as we said, helped him return to the Eastern Conference Finals five more times or whatever, a bunch more times. Uh, finally leaves the team in July 2009 to sign with the Boston Celtics, a thing that I kind of forget ever happened. And it's probably for the better that we did. The run did not go very well. Well, June 25th, 2010, Rasheed Wallace retires from the NBA. Then he will come back two years later to play for the New York Knicks. Very famous, uh, you know, with the Carmelo and yeah. I think Jeremy Lin years, which is funny because you're like, oh, that's Rasheed. He was like fine. You know, he wasn't great, but he was fine. He was OK. He was a decent enough yeah. player, especially two years out of the league. Uh, but then eventually he's going to retire again April 17th, uh, 2013. And that is it for uh, one Rasheed Wallace. Yeah, that's... Um you know, they had that team that had they had Mello, they had Ray Felton, they had Tyson Chandler, they had Jason Kidd, they had uh, they had Shump- young Shumpert, uh, Pablo Prigioni, Kurt Thomas, um, Kenyon Martin, Marcus <laughs> Camby. They had a lot of guys in that team. A lot of guys. Um, they had Marcus Camby too. Damn, I yeah. forgot that they had Marcus Camby too. I, yeah, only twenty four games. I, those I are a lot of or those are guys. Yeah, there's just a Jared, lot of dudes. Smith. <laughs> yeah, oh, right, right, right. Quinn Richardson played one game for that team. <laughs> Amari played 29 games for that team. So they have that a remarkable – yeah, I'm looking at this team. They have a remarkable thing that, like, every one of their guys is a guy. Like, you know – you know what I mean? Like, James White is the most anonymous guy in that entire team. 
Yeah. And like the rest of the dudes are dudes, you know, guys, you know, Chris Copeland, I guess is another one and Earl Barron. But like, yeah, there's like 15 guys that are like, Oh yeah, that guy. (laughs) Of course. All right. That's, that's funny. They were fun. That was the, 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 well, one of the few times in my entire life that I've actually had fun watching the New York Knicks. Right. Uh, that was, was the, that year, yeah, so. the one year they were actually really good uh, in the last 20 years, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, they, they were pretty good the low insanity year, but, but they were better this year, actually. So post anyway, enough about the uh, Knicks. Um, so let's move on to George Carter. So I have to admit that sometimes I get George Carter and Fred Carter confused because they both played, you know, late 60s into the 70s, mm-hmm. um, you know, similar names. You know, I I'm. You know, I'm old. My brain is addled. I just I get mixed up sometimes. So, to clarify here, so Fred, he was a guard named Mad Dog, nicknamed Mad Dog, um, or Doggy. Spent most of his career with the Bullets and the Sixers. He's uh, affectionately known as the best player on the worst team ever because he was on the '73 Sixers that won nine games, and also then had a lengthy career as a coach and a TV analyst, and also apparently helped popularize the fist bump. Um, which we'll have to wow. have to dive, yeah, have to dive into that one uh, at another time. How, but, yeah, my God, I'll put a pin in that yeah. one. That's an entire show. we got to figure out the history right. of the fist bump and yeah. how he decided. Like Someone's like, hey, high five, and he's like, nah. No, <laughs> no, no. I, my, Maybe he's the head of the game about like infectious bump. diseases. Yeah. He was like, nah, right. man, that's a really good way to spread infectious diseases. Yeah, <laughs> fist bump is better. Right. You know, the sweat doesn't touch directly, you know? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so... We got uh, we had George, who we're focused on here. George, um, he was a swingman. His nickname was Dirty Dingus, not not a dirty term. Um, <laughs> he played mostly in the ABA for six different teams. He was an All Star in 1971 for the Virginia Squires. He had um, almost 19 points per game and eight rebounds per game. He had a so we're gonna. I'm using the stat for the first time. We're gonna see experiment with it and see how it goes. So. He had a 103 league-adjusted true shooting percentage. That is a, a relatively new stat on basketball reference. So basically that just means that, like, he was above average true shooting. So if, like, 100 would be average true shooting, he had 103. So it was better than, than you know, three points better than average or whatever in, in terms of adjusted true shooting. So anyway, that's what that means. So, um but again, he played for the ABA for his entire career, except for one game, his very first game. The one that we're going to talk about um, was uh, his first ever pro game, pro game, playing for the Detroit Pistons against the Cincinnati Royals on October 17, 1967. George scored three points with one assist, played, playing in five minutes uh, for the Pistons, and a 131-108 drubbing up the Royals. First game of the season for both teams. George had been drafted in the eighth round, 81st overall in the draft by the Pistons. Uh, he also was drafted by the Buffalo Bills of the, I think they, they may have been in the AFL at that point, or maybe they just got into the NFL. I don't know. I forget when the merger was. And also the New York Mets. So three sports was drafted in, but he chose pro basketball. Um, but he only played for one game before he, and I unfortunately couldn't really find the details of exactly how this worked, but he, um, it was required to serve two years in the army before he returned to pro basketball. I don't know if this was, you know, because of Vietnam and he was drafted or if you know, he had some sort of other reason for the obligation or, you know, was in the reserve or whatever, but he, um, it was in the army for two years, then returned to, um, pro basketball going to the ABA and they remained in the ABA through 1976, but unfortunately didn't find a role once the merger occurred. He was age 32, of course, near the end for most athletes career at that point. 
Um, and, and there's a, a really terrific um, and heart-wrenching story that was done by the Indie Star. We'll try to include a link to it in the uh, show notes because George actually just passed away fairly recently, November uh, 2020. Um, unfortunately, you know, he was penniless. He, um, because he had never, or he only played that one game in the ABA, didn't qualify for an NBA pension. But he was helped along the way by the Dropping Dimes uh, Foundation and Scott Tarter, who we've had on the show um, previously. And they do a lot of great work, of course, for, um, you know, helping uh, former ABA athletes and advocating for those guys to, you know, be able to be included in the NBA pension program, which, you know, would be an awesome thing for the NBA to do and relatively low, uh, you know, um, amount of money to pay for considering, uh, you know, the amount of money that they make. So, um, you know, it's a great read. It's, you know, very, very sad. Um you know, that, that, you know, somebody who was such, you know, a, I uh, use especially a huge college star and, um, you know, was a guy who was, you know, fairly important player in basketball history, unfortunately, um, you know, fell on hard times and, um, you know, didn't have a lot of people in his life, um, to care for him toward the end, but, you know, he was, um, he, he did get some people sent sort of toward the end to kind of take care of him. And he's going to eventually, I believe his remains are going to be, um, you know, buried on the, uh, the, the campus of the St. Bonaventure. Um, oh, awesome. Where he was a uh, star. So that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. It, it, it stinks, you know, when, when live, you know, people's lives go that way. And, and, you know, we always, it's, you know, today's athletes, you, you know, obviously most of them are, are will, you know, it will not end up like this, you know, given what, what they made, you know, in, in their playing career and given, you know, now how the NBA is so much more aware of what happens, you know, in the post playing career for all their players. It, it, it's good to know that situations like this hopefully will happen very, very less or, you know, much, much less than they did uh, in this era. But yeah, it is unfortunate because, because Carter is one of many, many players uh, that has unfortunately kind of had the same sort of end uh, to his life. So, uh, I mean, it's good that, yeah, they were obviously able to help him a, a little bit in the final few days there, but, uh, uh, and the dropping knives foundation, obviously they do incredible work. So uh, good to hear that, but yeah, a little tragic that uh, his end, his year, you know, his life ended, uh, you know, so, uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah right. So, so yeah. sad after having such a cool career. So uh, we'll move on now to uh, Tom Chambers. Yes. Philadelphia 76er, Tom Chambers. I legitimately had never known about this run uh, until we were doing research for this piece, and, and and I saw Tom Chambers. I'm like, no, 76ers, really? It happened. It's true. We'll, we'll get to it here in a sec. He is drafted by the San Diego Clippers in the 1981 NBA draft. Uh, immediately becomes the team's top scorer. Uh, though they're the Clippers, even if they're in San Diego, it doesn't matter. They're still the Clippers, because uh, in true Clippers fashion, they draft Terry Cummings the following year and decide that, god damn, we just can't have two good players at once. So, you know, Chambers, oh. you're out of here, pal. <laughs> like, so. Right. Hey, we got one good player. Let's get another good player. We got it. No, we can only have one good player. We got to get this guy out of here. Yeah. Just keep Ridiculous. Tom yeah. Chambers. What are you doing? <laughs> like, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure trying to forwards. save, you know, a thousand dollars or something like that. So, so, you know, right. They can't have two forwards. That's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Yeah. How do you play with two, right. you know, two guys that play yeah. right. relatively the same position and, and both yeah. are good players. You can't, you can't score do that. Lot, so. Right. No, yeah. Well, yeah. luckily Tom Chambers would only go on to have another decade of high level performance in the NBA that the Clippers got nothing out of. Um, so anyway, he's on the move. He joins the uh, talented Seattle Supersonics team with Gus Williams and Jack Sigma. Not a good team at this point, um, uh, but but a decent enough team uh, here where you know the team's gonna not gonna win a ton, uh, but really break through in uh, 1987. 
where uh, despite winning just 39 games, uh, they make a run to the Western Conference Finals. Uh, they're swept 4-0 by the Lakers. Uh, and that year, Tom Chambers scores the then-career-high 23.3 points per game, makes an All-Star game. Uh, go on to win the All-Star game MVP that year as well. He scored 34 points uh, in the game. Kind of an all-time famous you know, All-Star game performance there where Tom Chambers just trying a lot harder than most other people were trying in the All-Star game and uh, got an MVP because of it, so good for him. Uh, but perhaps Chambers' most famous run is going to come, though, as he joins the Phoenix Suns, and that's what we're going to kind of talk about a little bit uh, here. Uh, this is also a story as it opens the floodgates for restricted free agency as well. This is not exactly the topic we were going to talk about, uh, but an interesting thing here is, and, and you could look it up, by uh, there's a Fox Sports article uh, that did a really good job uh, kind of digging into it, but, but I'll just read from this article here. Uh, it says, Players Union rep Larry Fleischer came to Chambers' agent telling him to pump the brakes on an assumed agreement to re-up in Seattle after the team made him a qualifying offer. Uh, Fleischer called my agent and said, hey, hold off on signing with the Sonics because we think we've got something coming down the pike here that may be revolutionary for the NBA. So Chambers said, so we did. A short time later, a revision to the CBA was finalized, allowing certain veteran players uh, the right to unrestricted free agency. Uh, the conditions dictated that a player had to have had uh, been through two contracts, played through two contracts, and have at least seven NBA seasons. Uh, Chambers at the time met both of those requirements and would later become a test subject for countless free agents to come. Uh, and obviously still today because Tom Chambers then goes, oh, okay, I can go wherever I want then. Cool. And he ends up going to the Phoenix Suns. So uh, he joins a team then that the prior year had only won 23 games. Uh, in 1989, they break through uh, under new coach Cotton Fitzsimmons. Uh, they win 55 games, make a run to the Western Conference Finals. Uh, Chambers is going to lead the team in scoring at 25.7 points per game. Uh, but the team's solid as hell all around. Is uh, you know just a really really cool and and really that's what would be the theme of the Suns throughout the late 80s and the early 90s. Just super deep teams because you know this year here that we're talking about in you know 1989, you got Eddie Johnson, Kevin Johnson, Armin Gilliam, uh, Jeff Hornacek. Dan Marley, Tyrone Corbin, you know, young Steve Kerr. Like, there's a lot of really cool, uh, you know, talent on these teams. But they break through. But they, you know, they make it to the Western Conference Finals, where again Chambers uh, would continue to lose to uh, teams that are better than him, mostly teams that were the Los Angeles Lakers. So uh, that ended up not working out great. Uh, in 1990, Chambers puts together arguably his best season ever. He scores 27.7 points per game. Cotton Fitzsimmons says, "Just shoot it, dude. Just score, go nuts, go crazy." And he does. Uh, the team wins 54 games. Once again, makes it to the Western Conference Finals, but this time they don't lose to the Lakers. Uh, they lose to Portland. They lose to the Portland Trailblazers in six games. Uh, 1993, obviously, Phoenix is going to add Charles Barkley, uh, and Chambers is going to take a reduced role as a result of Charles Barkley coming in, which, you know, Charles Barkley, one of the best players in the league at that time. Uh, Tom Chambers getting a little bit older, but decides, hey, I'll take a you know lesser role uh, to get this new guy included here, and it works out well because he becomes the team's six man, and then they break through, of course, the Suns, make it all the way to the finals before losing the Chicago Bulls on kind of an all-time great uh, NBA final. Uh, but that would be it for uh, Tom Chambers in Phoenix. The following season, he's going to move on to Utah. Uh, that's where he played college ball uh, as well. Uh, and he'd be the uh, backup to Carl Malone. Uh, once again, you guessed that Tom Chambers is in the Western Conference Finals. And once again, he's going home before the finals. Does not make it uh, past uh, the Houston Rockets. Uh, then in 1995, unfortunately, the bottom starts to fall out of Chambers. He averages under 10 points per game uh, for the first time in his career. His minutes plummet to uh, uh, you know, only 15.3 minutes per game. He also turns 35, so he's had a long career at this point, and yeah, things are not uh, obviously going uh, uh, super well at this point. So 1996, he decides, I'm done with the NBA. He's going to go to Maccab Tel Aviv in Israel, play with them. And hey, he breaks through. He wins a title. Uh, they win an Israeli League Championship. They compete pretty well uh, in the Euro League. Uh, you know, in addition, and then in 1997, he decides to come back to the NBA with another stint 
and a beginning with the Charlotte Hornets, the 1997 Charlotte Hornets. Yes. So this is a Greensboro.com article here. It says, anticipating another run of injuries and a possible aborted playoff run, the Charlotte Hornets acquired veteran Tom Chambers on Thursday to join the depleted Hornets roster. Uh, Quote, I think people thought I died and gone away or something, says Chambers. Uh, Chambers retired after the season last year, uh, but quickly realized he had made a mistake. I saw that I was as good or better than some of these guys who were in the NBA, and I thought, why not? Chambers said, this is my first love, obviously, and it's what made me what I am and who I am. So he comes with a re- renewed vigor to the Charlotte Hornets and uh, only last 12 games. Then he's waived. So uh, it does not end up being a great run for him, but it's not over because he is once again picked up by the Phoenix Suns, his team that he carved out is so much of his time with. Uh, but he ends up not playing a single game for the Suns because they then trade him to the Philadelphia 76ers. And I, I was going to kind of wait uh, to talk about this wrinkle of the story, but I'll get to it right now. So he's in Phoenix. He doesn't obviously play a game for Phoenix. And the big reason why is, and this is from this article, uh, in Phoenix several weeks ago, Chambers punched Suns strength and conditioning coach Robin Pound. It's an ironic name to get punched. Uh, the NBA Players Union in the aftermath of Latrell Spearwall's attack on Warriors coach PJ Carlissimo complained that Chambers was punished by neither the league nor the Suns. So they decided, okay, we won't punish him. We'll just trade him. So that's when he ends up getting traded to the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, and he's going to finish his 16-year NBA career as a member of the 1998 Philadelphia 76ers, a fascinating team uh, that has 22 players suit up for them. Uh, constant turmoil, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers at this time, trying to figure out how to build around Allen Iverson, whether to build around Allen Iverson, what the hell to do, uh, what their path forward is going to be. Larry Brown's in, and you know, this is his first year in, but this is a fascinating team. You got, you know, Allen Iverson, and then here are the guys that play for the team that year. You have Derek Coleman plays for the team that year. Jerry Stackhouse plays for the team that year. Jack, uh, Jim Jackson, Tim Thomas, Joe Smith, Clarence Weatherspoon, and then a bunch of like random veterans that come in and out uh, at random times, including Brian Shaw, the aforementioned Terry Cummings, the reunion of Terry yeah. Cummings and, and Tom Chambers. Yeah. Uh, Benoit Benjamin, unfortunately, this was like a decade, <laughs> like 14 years after they were both good, so uh, doesn't end up working very well for the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, but Tom Chambers plays one game November 26, 1997 with the Philadelphia 76ers. He scores six points on two of two shooting three steals and two rebounds not bad not bad at all but uh yeah. i don't know so uh terry cummings in that game 13 points five Let's rebounds go. three assists four <laughs> steals man yeah yeah that's um some good times yeah cummings and uh and chambers the best part is in, in the uh, in 1998 if you put terry cummings and tom chambers on this the, the los angeles clippers i think they'd still be like some of the best players uh, on team. The, the, yeah. the, the late 90s Clippers are uh, a lot like every other Clippers team besides the Chris Paul Clippers. They were bad. So yeah. um, very, very bad. But uh, yeah, that's it. I never knew. Uh, I never knew about the 76ers run and I never knew that uh, Tom Chambers punched the uh, strength and conditioning coach. And yeah. That, uh, and uh, yeah, fortunately for uh, Tom it worked out, he was able to later become a community relations representative for the uh, Suns. So um so he was able to get employment back with the uh, with the team. So, so so fun times there. Yeah, um, no, that's a good one. I didn't know that one um, either as well. So uh, nice little uh, nice little nugget there. And you you probably uh, for for you know I, me- I mentioned uh, you know the name there, uh, Robin Pound. And if you follow like the NBA on any level and remember the he's still I think he's still there. He was still there as of a few years ago. He's yeah. like. Got a big black beard, like he's one of the sun. You see him on the Suns bench all the time, and he's been there for years and years and years. And obviously, he's he's well regarded. I mean, a lot of guys will go to the you know for many many years would go to the Suns, uh, you know, when they had injury issues because he, he obviously was very well regarded. But uh, on that particular day, did not uh, see eye to eye with one Tom Chambers. So oh. um, there you go. 
hopefully they mended fences. I think so. Yeah, I, in the article that I read, uh, they said that it was kind of handled internally. So, um, right. I don't know. Maybe they had Robin Pound punch Tom Chambers once and said, "Okay, sure, we're moving now, maybe." So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you want to be you, you don't want to be pound foolish. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Um. On that note, let's go to uh, Tony Jackson for the Minnesota Pipers of the ABA. Now, Tony Jackson, he was another you know big college star. He was the MVP of the 1959 NIT when he played for St. John's. This was when the NIT was as big or even bigger than the NCAA tournament um, at the time because it was played at Madison Square Garden. Unfortunately, he was blackballed from the NBA after he'd been drafted by the Knicks. Kind of a similar situation to, you know, Connie Hawkins at the time. Um, you know, both of them were, um, you know, New York area guys, you know, caught up in a, um, you know, gambling scandal. Uh, Jackson was accused basically of failing to report a bribe offer that he had refused. So he, he didn't accept the bribe. He just didn't report the offer that he gave it. That was enough for the NBA. They're like, you know, um, no, we're not going to include these guys. You know, too bad. So sad. Um, Tony Jackson was like Hawkins um, did uh, find a role in the ABL, the American basketball league that was opened by uh, Abe Saperstein in the, um, early 60s and he was quite the three-point pioneer he shot 518 three-point attempts <laughs> in 99 games um made 35 percent of them so really good right no nba player would average that many three-point attempts per game until michael adams did it in 1989 so 25 years before that we had tony jackson shooting at you know, that many threes um, you know, in a professional league. So, um, you know, only three players did at that level in the ABA. So, you know, very rare um, occurrence up until, you know, by, by the early 90s or so. Um, and he once scored 53 points on 12 three-pointers point made um, in the ABL. So, you know, capable of big scoring bursts. You know, I think he was playing that league when he was 19, 20 years old. So extremely young. Um, and then at age 25 uh he later would join the um the aba as it as it began play you know the aba was open to uh you know hawkins and tony jackson and roger brown you know the, the guys who'd been blackballed you know in that in that unfairly in that scandal um and you know he plays really well for uh the new jersey americans who are now the nets franchise in the um aba's first season 19.4 points per game 6.8 rebounds only um only three, thirty percent three point shooting. So the percentage was down on on about four attempts per game. Um, and he also during that that season he set the ABA record for free throws in a game um, with twenty four. So you know season one goes really well. Uh, season two things uh, get go a little bit awry for um, for Tony. So he starts off with uh, three games with uh, the Nets. And then he is traded, I believe, for a draft pick. I, I couldn't find out officially, but he was traded to the defending champion Minnesota Pipers. Uh, Minnesota, the, the, the Pipers, they, they were starring Connie Hawkins. Uh, they moved from Pittsburgh for reasons that are too stupid to discuss here. <laughs> but um, anyway, they were Minnesota. Uh, in his one game for the Pipers, he did not register any recorded stats. It was a... Uh, a big win for the Pipers uh, against the um, New Jersey Americans who were now um, 
the uh, officially, I believe they were the New York Nets. So they moved to New York and they become the Nets. Uh, but they were they were not good. Uh, which you know they lost one of the best players. So why would they be good uh, for basically nothing? Um, then after that game, he was again traded to the Houston Mavericks. Uh, the Houston Mavericks would later become the Carolina Cougars, and then later become uh, I think I think more famously the Spirits of St. Louis. But they began their play in Houston. Um, he ended up having a reduced role on the last place team. Uh, at that point, he decided to uh, call it a career, and he he passed away at only age sixty five in uh, two thousand and five. But um, there was a cool quote in his obituary from the New York Times. It was actually a quote he had he had uh, given to Newsday. He said, "I have this belief: when you're created and brought to this earth, there's a plan for you." There was the plan for me. You're bitter for a while, but hey, there's life afterward. I didn't want to become a bitter person. So, unfortunately, you know, his blackball from the NBA didn't get a chance to become the uh, star that he definitely seemed like he had the potential to become. But you know, still carved out his niche and, and you know did some uh, pretty uh, interesting things. Yeah, you do. You do kind of hope that yeah, with a, maybe a more stable league uh, in the ABA, he could have carved out a nice little career, even if yeah, he had never. You know, ever was able to go to the NBA or ever kind of you know you know let in. It's just yeah, the Nets, the the, the Nets slash Americans trading him to the Pipers make no sense because he was like really good and a pretty important part of their team. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and obviously like that's kind of the day when he decided, ah, you know what, I'm kind of and yeah, especially yeah. you know growing up in the area, he was local, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's like, ah, fucking, I got a Minnesota and like, yeah, what am I right. doing here? Houston. Like, yeah, you know, kind of you could see you could see in his numbers, you could see in just the way he retired and the way he kind of petered out is that it just the love kind. Of got lost after that after he gets moved from the nets it's just like all right what do i even doing here so right yeah maybe there was injuries that you know I, not yeah clear it's so hard to know it's so hard to know with these yeah. aba guys uh you know yeah. what happens but uh yeah and it wasn't like it wasn't like there was huge money at that point either so maybe he had a better offer who knows but sure. um right, right. regardless yes uh it uh nevertheless uh he did uh he did do some notable things yeah and he's, he's a very famous uh st john's i'm almost positive they retired his number uh, yeah, like one of the well, yeah one of the top three or four players I think yeah, of all time. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so move on to Jamal Crawford, Brooklyn Net. Jamal Crawford, one of uh, this podcast's favorite uh, players of all time, Jamal Crawford. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, played high school ball at Rainier Beach High School in the Seattle region, which has really become a hotbed of talent. I mean, that high school alone uh, has produced Doug Christie, Nate Robinson, Terrence Williams, Kevin Porter Jr., and DeJounte Murray, in addition to Jamal Crawford. So that's uh, some nice company there. Uh, and that entire region, obviously, has, has, has spurned a lot of really good players over the last you know few decades with the help a lot of times of Jamal Crawford, which we'll talk about here a little bit uh but his number 23 is retired by rainier beach uh high uh anyway he is selected eighth overall by the cleveland cavaliers in the very horrendous 2000 nba draft he's immediately traded to the chicago bulls for chris mim uh it ends up working a little bit better i'd say for the bulls than it did for the cavaliers because chris mim was just okay and joel crawford ended up being pretty good but i guess you could argue that the bulls didn't get you know the full totality of of, of jamal crawford's powers uh but either way probably a win for the bulls they're trading uh, chris mim uh for jamal crawford uh, in the first year, it did not look that way, though, because Crawford struggled a lot, shooting only 35% from the field uh, during his first year. He only averaged 4.6 points per game. Uh, his second year did not go much better either. Uh, while he improved to you know 9.3 points per game, he only played 23 games 
uh, as a result of a bunch of injuries as well. Uh, the third year, that's when things are going to kind of come together for, for Jamal Crawford a little bit. Uh, the Bulls, who are still rebuilding after you know the Jordan years, uh, they move on from Tim Floyd, their kind of handpicked coach after Phil Jackson, and they move to you know former player Bill Cartwright, who comes in, installs a new system, and really kind of speaks to Jamal Crawford, and Jamal Crawford kind of likes what he's hearing here because we see you know the, the scoring rise up to 10.7 points per game, uh, then 2.3 rebounds per game for Crawford. Uh, his fourth season, though, that's when things really kind of you know start emerging, and, and the Crawford that we know and love really starts becoming what it is because at that point, Bill Cartwright and the Bulls realize, okay, this guy's not a point guard. This guy's not a take it down the court and pass it guy. He's a scorer. Give him the green light. Let's go, and, and the scoring increases a bunch. Uh, to 17.3 uh, points per game. Uh, April 11th, 2004, uh, he has his first 50-point game, uh, 24 points in the fourth quarter uh, as well uh, during that. And then uh, the Bulls decide, ah, you know what, we're done with this. And they trade him to the New York Knicks uh, before the 2005 season. And there's a, a lot of reasons for that. And Jamal Carver really never kind of found his his, his footing uh, with that Bulls team. And, that, and that, that was true of a lot. I mean, Tyson Chandler would be moved on pretty shortly thereafter. Uh, Eddie Curry would be moved on shortly thereafter. Like, they they just, like, all the guys that they rebuilt with, they kind of wanted a, a clean slate with those and, and wanted instead, you know, your your Ben Gorens and your Kirk Heinrichs. And this also was the same time that they did a big uh, ownership, or, or big GM switch from Jerry Krause to uh, uh, John Paxson. So uh, a, bit, a lot of stuff happening at this point. But anyway, Jamal Crawford is uh, packaged with Jerome Williams to the New York Knicks for Dikembe Mutombo, Othella Harrington, Frank Williams, and Cesar Trebansky. Uh, Dikembe, of course, would never play a game for the Chicago Bulls, but he's one of my first picks when people say, hey, who are, you know, who are random guys that played on teams that you don't remember or guys that got traded to teams you don't remember? And I always bring up Dikembe Mutombo, uh, who was a Chicago Bull at least for like a few weeks, but never ended up uh, actually suiting up for the team because uh, he's pretty quickly thereafter by his own you know request of saying, hey, I really don't want to play for your crappy team, uh, Chicago, so can you please try to move me? Uh, and they do. They trade him to Houston uh, for Eric Piakowski, Adrian Griffin, and Mike Wilkes, but uh, we're not talking about Takemi Mutombo. We're talking about Jamal Crawford uh, because then he would go uh, to New York and play there for several years, including his career year uh, in 2008 when he started 80 games uh, and got a season average up over 20 points per game at 20.8. I scores a career high 52 point game, uh, 52 points uh, on January 26, uh, 2007. Uh, as well. Uh, the Knicks, though, decide into the uh, 2009 season, just a few games in the 2009 season, that they are going to trade uh, Jamal Crawford to the Golden State Warriors for Al Harrington. Uh, this, of course, is the Don Nelson 2.0 Warriors, his return uh, to the Warriors, the, the 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 vestiges of the We Believe Warriors. And uh, it ends up working pretty well in the short term because uh, December 20th, 2008, Crawford scores 50 points for the Golden State Warriors, becoming only the fourth player in history uh, to score 50-plus with three different teams. He joined Wilt Chamberlain, Bernard King, and Moses Malone. I mean, that, that look, think of the company that Jamal Crawford's in there. Wilt Chamberlain, Bernard King, and Moses Malone. And Jamal Crawford. Like, I love it. It's great. Like, like six foot, 155 pound Jamal. You know what I mean? Like, just this yeah. little guy. And, the, you know, Wilt and Moses. And then Bernard King, obviously one of the most athletic, you know, skilled players of his, of his era. And then Jamal Crawford. It's just, I love it. It's right. great. That's why yeah, we love this I guy. Mean, yeah, I mean, three great players and one legend right there. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he's traded again, uh, this time to uh, Jason's Atlanta Hawks. Uh, for AC Law, the man who was in the news uh, over the last few weeks when Steph Curry uh, told uh, his his new rookie James Wiseman, "Hey, look! At one point, I even started. You know, AC Law started over me. So look, <laughs> like going to the bench is not a bad thing. And for AC Law, I'd be like, oh man, like 
Yeah. And which is cool because it did kind of it created this initial everybody laughing at AC Law and then coming back with everybody being like, ah, I mean, he was a good player. I mean, you, you know, it was good, but yeah. you know, yeah. he's not he Steph Curry. Like, I, I, yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I did feel bad for AC Law, but he, he's been in the news uh, lately there as well. And also Speedy Claxon. Uh, uh, yeah. that deal. So that's a lot of guards in one trade. That's like, uh, hey, we have a lot of short guards and you have a lot of short guards. You want to give us your short guard for two of yeah. our short guards? And they're like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. So uh, anyway, he is on the move to Atlanta. Uh, eh, it goes okay. Uh, finally, in 2010, he gets some real success. He wins the Sixth Man of the Year Award, the uh, uh, award that really should ha- should bear his name moving forward, if, if we're being honest I here. It really should, yeah. That, that, yeah, that's a campaign for that one. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not against it. I'm not against it at all. And the Hawks, yeah. your Atlanta Hawks, they Violent make the playoffs. Hawks. Joe yeah. Johnson, Josh Smith, Al Horford, Mike Bibby. I don't care what anybody says. I liked watching those teams. They were a little yeah. boring, but I liked them. Hey, they were fun. They you were know. fun. Yeah, talented team. I mean, that's a, that's yeah. I mean, look, that's four real good players. You know, Ed Jamal Crawford, real deep bench. I, I like those Hawks. So I, I will defend those yeah. Hawks. But uh, this is the first ever playoff for Jamal Crawford as well. Which again, ten years into his career, uh, he finally makes the playoffs. Uh, and of course, Crawford a bunch of uh, would bounce around a bunch over the remainder of his career. Uh, remain a you know pretty solid and reliable six man. Uh, 2014 six man of the year with the Clippers helps them win the most games in their franchise history. Uh, 57. That's obviously the Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul. Uh, era Clippers, and then uh, November second, two thousand fifteen, he becomes the third shooting guard in NBA history to reach sixteen thousand points. So another great uh, mark for him. Uh, two thousand sixteen, sixth man of the year with the Clippers again. Again, we're saying he's got to he's got to win this award. And, and the best part is that this time he's the oldest winner to win the award in two thousand sixteen, a record that he previously held in two thousand fourteen. So he was the oldest, and then he became the oldest again when he won it again. Jamal Crawford needs to be the sixth man of the year. Uh, namesake, I, I, I say it here, but uh, never an all-star Jamal Crawford, but sixth man of the year three times, and of course we said a favorite uh, of the show. Uh, he has one more game after his 51-point finale the prior season with the uh, the Phoenix Suns. So it, the, during the, the lot, we, and we, we did a show about, I mean, I think we maybe did an emergency show. At least we did our whole 50-point game series because of Jamal Crawford doing this. I'm almost positive. Like, that was an incredible thing that, you know, his it would appear to be potentially the final game of Jamal Crawford's career. He gets another 50-point game there, 51 points uh, with the Phoenix Suns. Uh, oldest player ever. With 50 point game at 39 years and 20 days, previously held by uh, some Washington Wizards player, Michael Jordan. Uh, it's not yeah, the same. That's, that's not the Bulls one, right? That's another guy, right? No, different. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah I was a Washington Wizards. Michael Jordan yeah. makes no sense. Right. Uh, anyway, and the most points ever scored by a player not in the starting lineup, uh, previously held by Nick Anderson, April 23rd, uh, 1993. And again, we have a whole series on 50 point games. If you want to get a little, a little bit of background yeah. about that, Nick, that Nick Anderson one, yes, okay. yeah, over back NBA.com, yeah. you can listen to it all. Um, yeah. so Crawford was so close to a bunch of different records, but it didn't look like he was going to get them. But yeah. here come the Brooklyn Nets in the bubble, in the Orlando bubble who say, all right, half our guys don't want to play. Half our guys have COVID Jamal Crawford. You are going to be the namesake for us. You're third place in all time, three point percent or, 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 or attempts. You're your top 10, top five in, in, in three pointers made and, and points. And also there's so many things that he could have done. And, uh, well, I ended up. He's no longer in third place in the all-time three-point attempts list. Uh, Jamal uh, James Harden has uh, has passed him as well, but he joins the Brooklyn Nets in the the bubble. He makes the team debut August 4, 2000, uh, 2020. Scores five points, dishes out three assists in five minutes. 
And that would be it for Jamal Crawford. That would be his only game as a Brooklyn net in the bubble. But uh, some things that he did accomplish here. He becomes the 29th player to play at the age of 40. Uh, he joins Vince Carter, Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowinski, Robert Parrish, Kevin Willis, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Kobe Bryant as the only players to play at least 20 NBA seasons. So it did get him over the hump. He was able to play 20 NBA seasons, but uh, did not carve out much of a niche with the uh, the, the bubble uh, Brooklyn Nets, unfortunately. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's assuming uh, his career is finished. He is uh, less than six hundred points away from twenty thousand for his uh, career. So, um, but alas, I don't so. think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't. Uh, well, maybe we'll see. Happen. But, we'll see. Uh, yeah. Not looking. It's no. Not looking great. Hey. Not looking great. No. Actually, but I didn't think last year. Hey, look, when he got signed by the Brooklyn Nets, I didn't think it was possible. So you know what. Yeah, there's no reason yeah. to. <laughs> I mean, we should well, keep the faith. I, yeah, keep the faith. Jason. I, I mean, he, he scored 50, two two games ago. He scored 50 points. He exactly right. <laughs> yeah, the, the the first player to to do it with four different franchises. So you know, that's what that's, I'm, saying. Uh, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Exactly. Yeah. So moving on next, um, we actually talked about him recently in our, uh, in a recent episode that we talked about guys who played for both the nuggets and the Lakers. So we won't, we'll, we'll just kind of give more of a general summary. This is Steve mix who, um, accomplished the, the one game stint with both the Denver Rockets. Now, of course the nuggets, but back when they were in the ABA, um, they were the original, the Rockets and then the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, and Mick started his career, he played a total of 61 games for the Pistons over three seasons. He was waived from the Pistons early in the 1972 season. Uh, about a month later, uh, the exact date is 12-23-71, he would pop up in the ABA for just one game uh, for the, the Rockets, the Denver Rockets again. Now the Nuggets, two points, one rebound in four minutes in a loss to the Pacers. He is one of 17 players who played only one game in the ABA. Um, of, of that list, the only person that I'd heard of there was Penny Early, uh, who is uh, a female, um, uh, I think a, a race uh would call it, a jockey, female jockey, mm-hmm. who um, you know was uh, played for the Colonels. Basically, all she did was basically inbound the ball, and then they called timeout and pulled her out of the game. It was of course a publicity stunt for the Colonels uh, at the time, but um, but yes, uh, so yeah, he's definitely the most famous name on that list. And um, then, and I, and I unfortunately could not find any re- reason for the circumstances of him coming to the Rockets and then. Uh, and then leaving the Rockets, uh, why he was cut after only one game um, outside of, you know, he hadn't really made a name for himself yet. And he'd already been kind of a journeyman uh, before the 73 season. He would um, sign with the Sixers, but then it would be cut in training camp. Uh, and that was the the year in which they finished nine and 73. So he was not even good enough. Yeah, to make you got to be pretty play. bad when you get cut right. from the worst team ever. So, <laughs> right. Yes. Um but then he would move on to the Continental Basketball Association. He would leave the Grand Rapids Tackers <laughs> to a CBA championship averaging 31.1 points per game. And this would uh, 
prompt the 76ers to give him another look in the 74 season. And then he would stick around for basically the next decade. He'd become an all-star in the 1975 season. He'd average 15.6 points per game, 10.9 rebounds per game, you know, would be a, you know, um, you know, a, a very near star level player for the uh, Sixers is, you know, they were on the rise into the seventies and then would kind of, you know, slide into a supporting role once they would, you know, get more talent. Obviously, they would get Julius Irving, George McGinnis, um, you know, Bobby Jones, Maurice Cheeks, all those guys. And, you know, he'd be a, a key role player for their, you know, for, for three finals teams in 77, 80, and 82. Unfortunately for him, before the 1983 title season, he moved on. He went, uh, first, he went to the Milwaukee Bucks. He lasted 57 games there. Uh, he was released, um, and then he signed with the Lakers at the end of the season. Um, he played one regular season game with them. So this is a bit of an asterisk because he did actually play uh, a handful of games in the playoffs for the Miss Ball. So even though it's on the books for one game, you know, with the playoffs, it was multiple games. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he would then uh, go to um, – you know, he'd go to the finals, which was the good part. The bad part was he would face his former uh, 76ers squad and he would be on the losing end of that as they would finally, you know, win their championship. So that was, uh, that was sad for him. And then um, after his um, playing career, you know, he, the, he, the mayor, as, his, as he was nicknamed, <laughs> he would end up uh, being uh, the women's coach at his alma mater at the uh, University of Toledo and also at, uh, at at Trine University as well, or Trine College. Uh, so, you know, he, uh, he had, you know, was able to do that. He did uh, some um, announcing as well uh, on the, he spent 22 years as a uh, color commentator on the 76ers television broadcast. So he, um, you know, had an interesting uh, little, uh, little life there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's great that the two there is really untouched in the in the two games of the one team. We even stumped uh, we even stumped uh, Curtis Harris today, Probst history. Uh, yeah, who, who was like, oh, we got to mention Steve Mix, and I was like, yeah, he was like the Denver Rockets were like and the Lakers too, and he was like, what? So that's uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's a very very rare case uh, to play one uh, one game with two teams uh, exclusively in your career and, and still carve out a pretty uh, a notable, at least semi notable. Uh, career like he did. Uh, next guy I want to talk about here is Bob Rule, who uh, played for the Milwaukee Bucks uh, just one game. And this is actually a pretty depressing one, as as Rule is is really a great what if uh, in NBA history. And speaking of Curtis Harris, uh, wrote a great newsletter about uh, Bob Rule in uh, August 2020 on his uh, his Probes History uh, uh, newsletter. So if you just type in Probes History Bob Rule uh, on Google or search engine or whatever, uh, it should come up. Or you know just go to Probes History's uh, newsletter. Uh, you should be able to find it again. August 2020 uh, goes into detail about it. But uh, Bob Rule, he's a second-round pick by the expansion Seattle Supersonics. Uh, immediately breaks out as one of the, the stars of the fledgling franchises. He's nicknamed the Golden Rule, which is an incredible name. Uh, he's named the 1968 NBA All-Rookie Team. And uh, his 18.1 points per game was a Seattle rookie record for 40 seasons, only to be broken uh, by some guy named Kevin Durant in uh, 2008. So that's been pretty good company to keep there, uh, to keep that record for as long as he did. Also averaged 9.5 rebounds per game. So he's immediately uh, just a, a, a tremendous player. And then he actually has 47 points against the Los Angeles Lakers, a talented Los Angeles Lakers team, which is uh, uh, still a Sonics rookie record. Um, 
you know, to this day. And a great quote from this uh, Seattle Times uh, obit about Bob Rule. Uh, it says, uh, uh, quote, I admired people like Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell and Nate Thurman and those guys, but I was not afraid of them, Rule said. My initial experience in the NBA was to have Nate Thurman block six of my seven shots in the first half. I go to the locker room and the coach, Al Bianchi, says, keep putting him up. He can't block them all. And I said, yeah, well, if I hadn't made that layup, he would have blocked them all. So that's a, a nice little quote there. Uh, is, but he learned he learned on the job and he, he ended up making it work. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they combined with Lenny Wilkins. Obviously, Rule is there. Lenny Wilkins is in the backcourt. Uh, Walt Hazard, a few other decent players for Seattle. So they're not like a, a great team, but they looked like a team, at least an expansion team that had talent. It was like, okay, look, this is a team that you can see uh, becoming a thing in, in the 70s. And obviously they would uh, uh, do that. Unfortunately, Bob Rule would not be a part of of, of that happening because uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. But his sophomore year, Rule averages 24 points per game, 1.5 rebounds per game, uh, second only to Elvin Hayes among NBA centers, which again, very good company to keep uh, for Bob Rule here. He's even better in his third year. He averages 24 points. Six points per game, 10.6 rebounds per game. He's named to the 1970 NBA All-Star Game. Uh, he's actually the third ever Sonic to do that. Walt Hazard and uh, and Lenny Wilkins uh, were the other ones to do that. And he finishes third uh, in average uh, among all centers. Um Kareem Abdul-Jabbar leads the way there. <laughs> he was also pretty good, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, at 28.8 points oh, per game. Yeah. And then Elvin Hayes at 27.5. But okay, you're, you're neck and neck there with Elvin Hayes and, and the rookie Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like, that's that's not bad. He's still pretty good. Oh. And, and Seattle's starting to get a little bit better, too. They climbed to 36 wins. Uh, they now have a new player coach in Lenny Wilkins. He's, he's on the court. He's coaching. He's doing all that sort of stuff there. And it seems like it's all going to kind of come together in 1971 as Rule uh, seemed ready for a career year. Uh, he averages 29.8 points per game over the season's first four games. Uh, and then tragedy, uh, unfortunately, strikes uh, in an unfortunate irony to the man uh, who would break his rookie scoring record. Uh, Rule is going to tear his Achilles in a game. Uh, and worse yet, it's while he was having contract negotiations with the team. Uh, a little bit of background here. This is, again, from Curtis's uh, great newsletter about him. Uh, it says, the Sacramento will be reported on October 14th, 1970. Uh, the Rule had rejected a contract offer from the, so- uh, the Sonics. I had hoped that we would reach an agreement on Wednesday, and I'm very disappointed that we didn't. Uh, this is from Sam Schulman, who's the uh, Sonics owner. He says, I offered $60,000 with a chance for him to make 90000 They wanted 75000 with some added incentives. Thankfully, though, for Bob Rule is he did sign the contract just before the injury. I uh, says uh, the, the Curtis uh, sort of alludes to the idea that the final number likely came between somewhere between 60000 uh, and obviously the 75000 uh, that he demanded. Uh, which again is a much better, a much bigger increase than the twenty eight thousand that he had made the prior twenty eight thousand five hundred uh, he had made in nineteen seventy. But regardless, uh, he tears his Achilles, and that's kind of going to unfortunately be it for for Bob Rule being a top tier player. Uh, Lenny Wilkins is quoted as saying it was tough. He certainly wanted to recover. He knew he had a good future, but we never saw him healthy again, and he really would never be the same player again. He'd return in nineteen seventy two, uh, but his scoring was gone, and, and and really his role was as well as he comes back to Seattle. Well, at this time they were able to bring in Spencer Haywood, who was obviously having a bunch of issues with rules and, and you know like you said and uh, and issues with eligibility and whatnot well he is able to come in he's able to you know add to the team so when rule does come back from his injury his playing time is basically gone they basically replaced him uh, with Spencer Haywood he only added 7.1 points per game uh, in his return to Seattle and then he's eventually traded to Philadelphia he'd play a lot better in Philadelphia 17.3 points per game 8.8 rebounds per game which is really good but he's starting to struggle with his athleticism and it's clear that like he's not really what he he was and uh, he never really fully recovered from that Achilles injury which again like Kevin we're, we're watching what we're watching in today's NBA right now as it's going on is like historic like Kevin Durant being as good as he is after an Achilles injury it just doesn't happen like guys do not I mean many guys that we've seen that have had that injury never come back 
Uh, and those are guys with modern medicine and modern athletics and modern sports training, all that sort of stuff. Uh, very different in the early seventies, you know, blowing out your Achilles and, and, and still trying to become an NBA player. Uh, but rule, you know, he joins the Philadelphia team that's in free fall as well. So a lot of issues going on there. Uh, three games in the 1973 season rule is traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, his numbers are going to tank even more as the average is only seven point, uh, 2.7 uh, points per game there. Uh, as I said, uh, then in 1974, he improves a little bit uh, to 7.2 points per game. But uh, after 26 games, he is waived uh, by the Cleveland Cavaliers. And this is a quote from Bill Fitch of, of the Cavaliers. He says, Bob was making a super salary by putting him on waivers. He has a chance to negotiate his salary with a team that might need him. If he's traded, the club that gets him uh, has to take him with his present salary. I just hope Bob doesn't give up trying. But it got to the point where uh, Steve Patterson and Jabru were playing very well. And that's a ton of money to play for a player. Uh, to pay for a player who just sits on the bench. So uh, an unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> uh, Bill Fitch, and, always the delicate. Man. Yeah, uh, really saying, like, I don't yeah. want to pay this guy who doesn't, who's no yeah. good, a bunch of money. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Or like, like, I hope he keeps Frazier his head up. I hope he doesn't, yeah. Yeah, I hope he doesn't give up, right. but he stinks and we don't want to pay him any more money because he sits on yeah. the bench all day. It's like, Jesus, yeah. God. Yeah. Come on, Bill. He's coming back he from him with Achilles. Like, all diplomacy. A, yeah. Yeah. He didn't sign the, he's, you know, he didn't, he didn't write up the contract. Well, I guess he kind of right. did, but, you know, he signed it. Anyway, right. uh, anyway yeah. Rule's going to get picked up by the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, of course, Kareem Abdul Jabbar is still there. Uh, and he's only, you know, he's going to be the backup for Kareem Abdul Jabbar, but it does not last very long. In fact, it lasts, you guessed it, one game. That's the reason we're doing this entire show. That's the reason we're talking about him. Uh, he played one very unproductive game for the team zero points, two fouls, two assists, 0 of 1 from the floor. He's waved again. And never plays in the NBA ever again as well. But uh, yeah, one of what a, a real good what if of the early seventies too, especially on that Seattle team that that could right. have just another weapon uh, as they were. I mean, because they were already winning, you know, by you know five six years in, they're winning titles. You know, they're in the NBA Finals, they're winning titles uh, as an expansion team. Like you do wonder what would happen if they had him as well, uh, and if that would have helped, hurt, or, or whatever. But uh, definitely a what if. Yeah, I mean, especially during those Russell years, it's another weapon that they have. You know, and those are pretty good teams, you know, with – you probably could have you figured a way to – if he's healthy, you know, he plays alongside Haywood or, you know, you, you figure some way of um, making that work. And, yeah, he definitely improves um, the, the talent situation for them for it to uh, – shame that it happened the way that it did. Yeah, for sure. So next we have uh, Walt Bellamy of the New Orleans Jazz. He is the only Naismith Hall of Famer on uh, this list, at least so far. Um, and, you know, the uh, this is during the expansion, or actually they acquired before the expansion season for the uh, Jazz. The the Jazz had really, really wanted uh, Pete Merritt, which is, you know, most of um, our, our fans know, you know, they uh, gave up a um, – the Jazz gave up a King's Ransom to uh, get Maravich. They gave up two players and five draft picks. Two of them were first-rounders, and um, in fact, one of them ended up being the number one overall in 1975. That was uh, David Thompson. So, um, Also, the uh, as part of the trade, um, they um, the, the Hawks ended up getting the – the first two players that the jazz selected in the uh, dispersal draft uh, or the expansion draft, rather Bob Kaufman and team Meminger. So, you know, a lot, a lot of talent going there. The uh, jazz decided, you know what, you know, we're, we're going to get Pete Maravich. We might as well get Pete Maravich's running buddy, Walt Bellamy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've been playing together for four or five years and he was selected by the jazz in that expansion draft. The, the trade actually happened on the same day as the uh, expansion draft. Um, Bellamy at this point was heading into his 14th season, though, you know, he obviously been overshadowed in his career by guys like Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but, you know, 
career, nothing to be ashamed of. 20, 20.1 points per game, 13.7 rebounds per game. He's a four-time All-Star. He's a rookie of the year. You know, he'd, um, he did not add a lot of postseason success, but, you know, he been on some fairly good teams here and there. Um, certainly a, a more than respectable career. Uh, but, you know, he bounced around a lot his first two years with the expansion with the expansion Chicago franchise, the Packers Zephyrs. And then he spent two years when that team moved to Baltimore to become the bullets. Then he spent about three and a half years with the Knicks. He did help lead that team to the playoffs for the first time in eight seasons. Uh, then he had a short stint with the Pistons, then kind of settled into the later part of his career with the Hawks, you know, again, starring with Maravich and Lou Hudson for um, four plus years. So that led to this point where he was, um, he was with the jazz and, um, he played for the Jazz on the uh, the first game of the season. He uh, he had six points um, and five rebounds in fourteen minutes. So certainly, you know, productive uh, game for uh, Bellamy. But um, Bellamy was uh, again. I, I did could not find whether it was Bellamy's decision. If he's just like you know what, I'm not really into the whole idea of uh, you know playing pro basketball anymore, or if I you know, I don't want to play for the Jazz. Um, but or if it was the team's decision for some reason, but he uh, was waived by the Jazz and uh, did not play uh, in the uh, in the NBA again. You know, and he'd had he's. It seemed like he could still play. I mean, based on his production the previous yeah, season, right, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, he averaged thirteen point one points per game. Um, you know, ninety nine point six rebounds. You know, close to fifty percent shooting. I mean, his, his numbers were fine. They were about as good as they'd been over the the previous four seasons. So. Um, which makes me think it was probably just maybe he was just ready to be done. Um, yeah, and it's know. not like a, a bunch of injuries too, because you look at his games played throughout the you know his, his career, and he's a, an Iron Man. I mean, obviously playing eighty eight games in the one year that we always right. you know bring up, but no, like even the year prior, he's still playing seventy seven, seventy four, so eighty two, eighty two, eighty eight, eighty eighty seventy. I mean, he he was he's a guy that was playing all. The, I mean, it, it weren't like you know a bunch of nagging injuries, and he's just like ah, it hurts too much to play. I'm I'm done. Yeah, you wonder. If it was just playing in New Orleans, he's probably just like, this is not going to go well. I don't really want to be a part of this anymore or something. Right. I don't know. Yeah, it's very interesting, like you said, because, you know, he, he and he's playing with Merovich. He's playing with a guy. He's old running. Maybe he hated Merovich. I don't know. Maybe, maybe like, I don't know. This guy again? Oh, I'm out of here. Yeah. Screw this. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Bells was always somebody who kind of marched the beat of his own drummer. So, you yeah, know, yeah. who knows? But it's interesting. Yeah. It, it seems, I mean, it's definitely the age where it was close to the end, but it, it, it seems, uh, but yeah, no injury was mentioned in anything that I read, so um, not clear on on the why. But but yes, he has one game as a uh, as a jazz man. There you go. The very the very first jazz game. You know, yeah, so. yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Famous there. All right, so our final yeah. guy we're going to talk about here is Andrew Bogut on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I suddenly got very hungry for pizza. I don't know if it's just you or just me. I don't know if you're really hungry. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Andrew Bogut uh, selected by the Milwaukee Bucks, first <laughs> overall pick. Rich, I, I, I have to say, I, I did not see that reference coming. Not see. <laughs> the pizza kale. Yeah. Anyway, is he still? I don't know. Follow. I don't know. Follow today's Andrew Bogut, but I can't uh, imagine you, what. Yeah, there's no reason to. It's not good. <laughs> I imagine it's it's going well, and and yeah. it's, it's 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 worse. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. Selected oh. by the Milwaukee Bucks, first overall pick in the 2005 NBA Draft, and uh, uh, despite some uh, bumps in the road, obviously for Bogut, he's actually going to be eighth in that uh, class. That's a really deep, really good uh, NBA draft as well. Uh, he's going to trail Chris Paul, Darren Williams, David Lee, Marvin Williams. Vindicated there for Marvin Williams as he's still yes. carving out a great a NBA career. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, not so yeah, much for the Atlanta right. Hawks, but vindication yeah. for. 
Marvin, I guess. Well, yeah. He did half that. Yeah, half this. That's half true. That's season. true. Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does help that Darren Williams kind of became a pile of crap real quickly. Uh, because uh, yeah, when, the, you, nice. when it was like when you were bookended by two Hall of Famers, it ended up being kind of a, a struggle there. But uh, right. anyway, uh, Lou Williams, yeah. Marcin Gortat, and Amir Johnson all uh, have more win shares than Andrew Bogut at the 2005 draft. But that's some decent company yeah. and some pretty uh, interesting guys. But anyway, uh, Bogut's going to finish third in rookie of the year uh, that year, averaging 9.4 points per game, seven rebounds per game uh, for the Bucks. Uh, 2008 career highs in both points, 14.3, and rebounds, 9.8 for Bogan as well. Uh, the problem, though, is he's going to start having a lot of injuries in Milwaukee, uh, a lot of nagging injuries. He's going to have a stress fracture in his back, leg bruises, and then in uh, April 2010, probably the most famous injury of Andrew Bogut's career, a disgusting fall uh, that results in a broken hand and a dislocated elbow and just a very disgusting replay that I never want to see again. Uh, he would miss the entire 2010 season because of that. Uh, in 2012, he comes back, he fractures his ankle, misses more time, and the Milwaukee Bucks decide, okay, we're kind of done with this and we're going to move on. And, and they move on in one of the more transformative deals in NBA history, one of the biggest deals in NBA history that had ripple effects on the very fabric and the very history of the NBA at the Milwaukee Bucks trade, Andrew Bogut, to Golden State, for Mata Ellis. I mean, trans, just the biggest trade in NBA history. Uh, not because of Andrew Bogut or really because of Mata Ellis, but what it does is it opens the door for Steph Curry then to become the full-time point guard uh, for the Warriors. And the Warriors make a deep playoff run uh, almost instantly and become, you know, the Warriors, as we saw the fucking yeah. dynasty well, that completely yeah, changed the way the NBA played. So. I mean, they didn't keep AC Law. If they kept AC Law, then obviously AC Law would have, you know. Right, right. Role. Yeah, it was both of those. You're right. So it was, it was both deals, actually. It was the Jamal Crawford trade right. and the. Yeah. 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 So there, there are two transformative deals yeah. that we talked about here that really set the stage uh, for today's <laughs> NBA. But uh, this is like, you know, I'm la- all laughing aside. Like, this really did change things. I mean, and, and this is yeah. famous. I, I remember uh, uh, Jerry West when he was kind of introducing the new owners, the Joe Lacob and I forget the other guy, Peter Goober, right? Isn't that the other guys? Yeah. Like yeah. Uber. Uh, they had it was like the first game, you know, in in uh, Oracle after they had traded Monta Ellis, and this crowd is just booing them. Like, How dare you trade Monta Ellis, you son of a bitches! You guys suck. And uh, Jerry West, I, I remember, had to grab the microphone and be like, "Just stay with us. We're smart. We know what we're doing." Uh, nobody trusted Jerry, but Jerry ended up being right uh, on that one. So uh, it ended up working out uh, pretty well because Bogut plays well with the Warriors, albeit in a slightly reduced role. His scoring is cut in half. Uh, from his double-digit years with the Bucks, uh, or was it Rick? Was it Rick Barry that that? No, it was. Was it Rick Barry? I think it was Rick Barry. Actually, now that I think of it, it was Rick Barry. You're right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, because like Jerry West would have just yeah. been like, ah, these idiots don't know what they're talking about. Rick Barry's like, I'm going to tell these idiots they don't know what they're talking yeah. about. Yes. <laughs> like Jerry West is like, ah, we'll just prove it on the court. They don't care. Rick's like, no, no, right. no, 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 no. Give me that damn microphone. Yeah, I'm going to convince him. That's right. Yeah, they're two two very different personalities. I, I, man, incredible. Yeah. Love Rick Barry. Uh, anyway, so yeah, and he was right. Rick Barry was right again uh, on that You're one. Right but, again. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, Boga plays a slightly reduced role, uh, scoring really cut in half from his double digit years in the Bucks. Uh, still, he remains a solid defender, a really good uh, rebounder, and really, I mean, they, uh, one of the linchpins of that early Warriors team. Uh, because you know with Steph and Clay and those guys sort of emerging as as, as scorers and not quite complete defenders at that point, having interior defense with Andrew Bogut really helped, and he's setting great screens on the top. Like it just it was the perfect role for Bogut and a, a perfect role for the Warriors. Uh, and of sure. course, um, they win the title in 2015. Uh, and I'm not I'm not saying this is because of it, but Bogut gets hurt again uh, in Game Five of the 2016 NBA Finals. And the Warriors do end up blowing that huge lead and losing in the finals. So I don't, I don't know if yeah. that's a coincidence. Uh, I'm just saying, you uh, know. 
Yeah, it might be a conspiracy involving pizza. Who knows? It's, it's very know. possible. Yes, some people might say that Draymond Green getting suspended uh, turned the corner of that time. I, know, that that I, mean, I like to think that, yeah. that it was Andrew Bogue getting hurt. Yeah. But, uh, so, so something that occurred just occurred to me, um, the fact that two of the key players uh, of the early Warriors, uh, Bogut and uh, Sean Livingston, both are known for extremely horrific injuries. That, You're right. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. Thank you. So, <laughs> now I'm just remi- that, that, like, now yeah, that, reminded know, of horrific. Sean Livingston's yeah. horrific, horrific right. injury. Yeah, that, yeah. I, those were Ugh. those are both not, not ideal. So right. uh, anyway, so a little sunshine in our day here. Yeah, so, thank you. Anyway, July 2016, uh, the Warriors decide, you know what? We don't really need Andrew Bogut that much. They trade him to the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, and another transformative deal in NBA history, Andrew Bogut and really uh, many of these, uh, because what they end up doing is getting away from uh, Andrew Bogut's salary. The NBA salary cap increases a little bit. The Warriors have a little bit of space, and they decide, you know what? Let's sign Kevin Durant. And then Kevin Durant comes to the Golden State Warriors, and obviously it works out very well. They win some titles. Uh, February 2017, Bogut is traded in a much less transformative deal. Uh, slightly less transformative than Kevin Durant or, or you know any of those other ones, but uh, he is uh, dealt to Philadelphia for Nerlens Noel. So uh, slightly, again, slightly less transformative in that one. Well, yeah, yeah. And now the uh, the game we're here to talk about, March second, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers decide they have absolutely no use for Andrew Bogut at this time uh, in, in February 2017, so they immediately waive him. March second, 2017, he uh, Bogut signs with the Cavaliers, uh, a team he was very familiar with during their uh, NBA Finals battles, which was one of like eight players that it felt like the Cavaliers and the Warriors would just trade back and forth every single year. And like like the Anderson Varejao, Andrew Bogut guys, and it was just like they really need Andrew Bogut. Like, what are you doing? But whatever, they decided that's what they needed. Maybe they get some intel on the Warriors. Uh, but anyway. March 6, 2017, Bogut gets into the game. He commits two fouls, then 56 minutes later, he fractures his tibia. So that is uh, a very uh, ominous beginning to his Cavaliers run and the final run of his Cavaliers run because uh, that is the one game that he plays with them. He's released March 13, 2017. Uh, he makes brief stops in Los Angeles and again with the Warriors in 2019, which I completely forgot uh, was a thing. Uh, but at this point, he, he barely played and was pretty much uh, irrelevant. I think he had one or two like pretty decent playoff games that, that were kind of like this throwback games or whatever. But uh, for the most part, uh, not very good. And and um, now I don't really know what he's doing or really care what Andrew Bogut's doing. So um, it, it's it's not good. Not not worth uh, digging into. So don't recommend it. So, so that's it, Andrew Bogut. Andrew Bogut. All right. Yeah. Uh, ending with a bang. So um, yeah, uh, good stuff. Um, this is a fun one. I uh, I enjoyed uh, learning some stories about these guys. Uh, kind of uh, obviously the the one game thing is definitely just sort of an oddity there. Um, you know, I think we're looking into uh, initially uh, the I, I got this idea because I wanted to look at guys who were um, had only ever played for a team during the preseason and never during you know the regular season or the postseason, or guys who just played for team on the postseason. But uh, it was a lot harder to research into those guys than it was to do into this. So we started with this, and maybe we'll do the other idea later. Yeah, we're, we're pretty interested in another one. We found some good players. It's going to take a little bit longer to find like the, the all these guys because there's a bunch of dudes, right. you know, that, yeah. that have like you know a training camp run or you know things like that that are hard to find. But we're uh, we're working on that one. But uh, yeah, if you do know of anybody, your your favorite team, and you remember, hey, I remember when blank I uh, played for my favorite team for a little bit. Um, yeah, let us know because that uh, that'll help us. But we have a few guys, and it'll be definitely a fun episode uh, to touch on here. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
So, yeah, thanks, everyone, for checking it, uh, us out. Of course, you can, uh, again, as we talked about at the top of the show, you can go to overandbacknba.com, and you can find our complete and full archives now. Uh, any of our past shows, you're, you can go there. You can find the link. You can download it. You can listen to it on any of your favorite uh, podcast platforms, so on and so forth. Of course, uh, any place that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's Spotify, wherever you are, if you could leave us a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. That helps other people learn about the show. Um, we are also on social media, Facebook and Twitter, both over and back NBA, if you want to uh Communicate with us. Let us know uh, if you have any ideas for us, any corrections, any uh, compliments or uh, gentle criticisms. We uh, would appreciate those. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again soon.